Matthew Webb knew what it took to brave the open sea. At age 12, he joined the crew of the HMS Conway. As the second mate on a cruise ship, he once dove into the Atlantic in an attempt to save a man who had been swept overboard. By the age of 27, Matthew was a captain in the Merchant Navy. In 1875, he sealed his place in history by becoming the first person to swim across the English Channel. It took him 21 hours and 45 minutes. He leveraged his fame and his knack for staying afloat by putting on swimming exhibitions and staging feats of endurance. His 21 hours in the channel seems like child's play compared to a later stunt. He swam continuously for 74 hours. He had one four-minute break. That daring display netted him a tidy profit for his efforts. But as his fame and fortune started to dry up, he entertained other dangerous ideas of how to once more risk the water in hopes of a hefty payday. Now, in our text tonight, we're picking back up in the story of Paul's fourth shipwreck. He's being transported to Rome from Caesarea, along with some other prisoners and a load of grain from Egypt. The ship he's on is large, has nearly 300 men on board, and they're way past safe sailing season, which we saw last time. But despite Paul's knowledgeable and wise warning, the captain and the crew decided to risk the voyage and make for Phoenix a more enticing harbor. The trip had already been quite a struggle. The sailors had a payday in mind, though, and so they pressed on. Though it wasn't Paul's idea, he and his friends, Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, they're brought along on this doomed crossing. What are Christians supposed to do when the unbelieving world ignores us and yet we're still brought along, as it were, on their ill-fated plans? We find ourselves in a time right now when God's ways are more and more ignored. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. And our society sails on and on toward disaster. Is there anything that we can do or should we just abandon the ship? In this harrowing account, there's a lot we can take to heart since we are now the ones standing in the place of Paul and Luke and Aristarchus, intervening for a lost and dying world. Our main goal tonight is to see what the Christians were doing during this section of Scripture and how that can apply to our own ministry to the unbelievers around us. Let's begin at verse 13. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they, did, they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Now, the soldiers and the sailors and the merchants on board, they knew better, but they were enticed by this gentle breeze, which beckoned them like a siren song. It just reminds us of how Eve was tempted by the fruit there in the garden. Even though she had been warned, even though she should know better, she thought, maybe, maybe this danger won't apply to me. Maybe I'll skate by unscathed. We see what they were thinking. It says right there, they thought they had achieved their purpose. What was their purpose? Well, the soldiers, the sailors, and the merchants, they all had their own selfish wants and purposes. At the moment, they overlapped. What we'll find as the text goes on is their purposes are uh, more and more divided, and it pretty quickly becomes every man for himself in a very sad way. But for right now, they all thought the same thing. Let's get to Phoenix. There's indulgence there. It's closer to Rome. It's closer to our payoff. Because their purposes were materialistic and self-centered, they made a very poor decision. And they looked to their present circumstances to justify themselves. They knew it was past not just prime sailing time. They knew they were downright into dangerous 
sailing time. Uh, around here, we understand the fog, right? Maybe when you first move to this area from somewhere far away, you don't quite understand the fog, but you put a few seasons under your belt and you understand the fog. And you understand that on certain days, you can't, or rather you shouldn't, drive as fast as you normally do when the fog is all dense. These guys knew better, but they thought, ooh, there's a gentle breeze. It must be a good omen. Let's use our present circumstances so that I can get closer to my selfish goal, uh, even though I should know better and it's against all wise reason. Now we see a very different characteristic among the Christians here. They were careful. I don't mean that they were timid or that they were reluctant to do anything. No, they were just careful. They cared about what the Lord wanted and what was really going on in the situation. The truth is, Paul the apostle probably wanted to get to Rome more than anyone else on board. I mean, he really wanted to get to Rome, but he was the one that said, hey, this is not wise. This is not a good plan. This is going to be a disaster if we try to press through and rush this thing. His personal wants and his earthly circumstances weren't the driving factors in his life. The Lord was. The Lord's will, the Lord's desires, the Lord's leading was what motivated him and directed him and drove him through life. He was willing to wait and submit to the Lord's leading. Christians should be careful in that way. Paul wanted to get to Rome real, real bad. And he had been waiting for years for the chance to get there. And now he's on the ship and he's taking a look around and he's using wisdom and common sense and he's just seeing what's really going on. He's allowing his personal desires to be submitted under the word of the Lord and the, you know, uh, the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ. And he says, yeah, we shouldn't go. We should wait. And so Christians should be careful in that sort of way. Verse 14, but before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Calda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. So they sailed into a typhoon, one so scary it had a name, the Euroclidon. Over the next two weeks, it would beat them, toss them, blind them, taunt them. The gentle breeze, which had promised so many good things, was the bait that drew them into a trap that they wouldn't be able to escape. Luke even says there, very interestingly, they were caught. The ship was caught. Uh, like, like the sailors in the mythologies who followed the siren song, they were going to crash on the rocks and be destroyed. Now, here we see the first instance of another Christian characteristic throughout this story. The Christians were helpful. We were barely able to get control of the skiff. Throughout, we're going to see Paul and Luke and Aristarchus involving themselves and joining the work, trying to physically assist as much as possible. They didn't say, hey, it's us versus you. And this is all your fault, and so nanny, nanny. Uh, they didn't act like, this at all, that, act like that at all. They were part of the voyage, and they were going to do whatever they could to help and assist and save and support. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship, fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis. They lowered the drift anchor, and in this way, they were driven along because we were being severely battered by the storm. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Luke vividly describes a situation that is becoming increasingly desperate. 
Storms were nothing new, but this was a new kind of storm, or rather the kind of storm that you only sail in once, which is why you don't sail, sail in late October or November. They are in a fight for their lives here. That is clear immediately. The integrity of the ship is in danger. They have to tie it together so that the hull doesn't rupture. It's so serious that they toss out all the loose furniture, some of the personal belongings that weren't tied down, even as much of the tackle as they could, meaning stuff that you needed to sail or make repairs when things were inevitably broken. But note what was not thrown out, the grain. We're breaking up our passage over a couple of weeks. It's a grain ship full of cargo that's coming from Alexandria up to Rome. Lots and lots of barrels of grain. What's heavy? Barrels of grain. Uh, but they said, throw out your chest full of clothing, throw out your provisions of food and supplies, throw out the first aid kit, throw out the tackle, throw out all that stuff, the grain stays. You know, I don't know if my one extra coat weighs as much as this huge barrel of grain. Uh, it's kind of sad, but it's interesting. They wouldn't throw out the grain. When it says cargo, it didn't include those barrels. We'll find out why in a little bit. But though they would have been large and heavy, Still, the crew were hanging on to a hope of profit. So we see kind of the mentality when we might just squeeze, squeeze through and at least we'll have that gold in our hand at the end of the trip. Verse 20, for many days, neither sun nor stars appeared and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. I remember a few years ago when we were in Columbia, we drove from the Bible college uh, out to this other river city, and it was like 10-hour drive, a long way away. And the final few or several hours of the drive uh, are all on a dirt road. I use the word road uh, generously, a dirt area that some vehicles go down. At one point, we had to stop and tie the bumper back on because it had bounced off. So we're on this dirt road. No cities, no lights, just a shack every you know, 20 miles or so. We left at about noon from the Bible college and once we hit the dirt section, it was dusk. And then the rain came, which didn't seem like a big deal except for that the dirt then became mud and the mud completely covered our headlights. And so there we were, uh, no signs, no lights, no cell coverage. Our driver, we love him so much, he clearly had no idea where we were. He, had, he said, oh, I've driven this way once before in the day without the rain. And, uh, and so he wasn't sure where we were or, or if we had made a wrong turn at some point. We kind of would just stop every now and then and kind of look out into the darkness and wonder where Oroque was and why did we decide to come from the Bible college to Oroque. Uh, I don't know about Jacob and Alex, but as the hours passed, I felt my hope seeping away. That's true. I thought, I thought, I have a small bag of like almonds. I'm not sharing them. But like we were hours from anything and we would go outside and it's raining and everything's covered and, we, and there's just nothing. We just looked into the dark. So I was a little bit freaked out, but I can't even imagine what a trip like that would be like. Not that I, we might not know where we are in the middle of Columbia, but that, hey, you're about to die. You're not in a Mitsubishi Raider. You're on a wooden ship that's creaking and breaking apart. You're in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it hasn't been like five hours. It's been a week. Uh, scary stuff. What Luke is describing is desperate. 
Little by little, each of the 276 people on board was accepting the fact that they were going to die before they reached land. One commentator suggests they must have sprung a leak already by this point, making it only a matter of time before each and every one of them drowned in the dark. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Yikes, shots fired is what we would say. <laughs> Morale's probably really low at that point, I'm guessing. Is Paul just sticking a thumb in their eye? No, he's too compassionate for that. What he is is being truth, truthful. Christians are meant to traffic in the truth, and some truths are hard, uh, but we're to, supposed to deliver the truth explain the truth, traffic in the truth. Our message isn't to be tailored just to make people feel a certain way, to make people feel better or feel good or feel excused for the wrong things that they have done. Our message is meant to be an explanation of what is real. And this was the truth. Now, why was Paul speaking this truth to them? Was this some sort of tell it like it is rudeness that is sadly so prevalent in our culture today? I'm just telling it like it is. No, you're a jerk. That's what's really happening. The Bible tells us very, in, in a very key moment, you can speak the truth all you want, but if you have not love, it's just a clanging symbol. You have to speak the truth in love. So what is Paul doing here? Paul was speaking the truth in love, just as we are called to do. Look at what comes next. Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me, but we have to run aground on some island. In addition to being truthful, we see Paul is being hopeful. Despite the circumstances, he had absolute, sure, full confidence in the Lord's care and goodness. And so even though the storm of the century was physically breaking up the very deck he was standing on, he didn't have to live in fear. This is an amazing thing. I think perhaps somebody needs to hear this message tonight because several of the verses that were shared in the prayer time have to do with the Lord taking away our fear. So if this is for you, then receive this from the Lord. And all of us need to hear this message about God removing our fear. Listen, we live in a time when fear is the default. Everyone outside of these walls who's not a believer wants you to be very afraid, afraid of the other political party, afraid of this catastrophe, afraid of the temperature of the earth, afraid of a virus, afraid of the economy. You have to be afraid, be very afraid. You can't turn in any direction without being told how afraid you should be. It's being sold to you. It's being thrown at you. It's, being, it's laying siege around the walls of your heart. But part of your salvation as a Christian is being saved not only from your sins, but being saved out of fear. Perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. The love that saves you from the guilt of your sin is the same love that wants to deliver you from fear. God says in Isaiah 43, don't fear for I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Thanks to God's love, we are a hopeful people. Christians are meant to be hopeful. 
Look at the situation that Paul and his friends are in, and yet they are hopeful. There isn't a worse situation than the one that they're in. They are all about to die. The, the next wave could be the last wave for each of them. And Paul says, don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. God, to whom I belong, has told me that I don't have to be afraid. In fact, Paul went beyond telling them to not be afraid. He said, put cheer in your hearts. Take courage. And when he says that, he says, we think of courage and bravery and being valiant and all that. It also just means put cheer in your heart. Be cheerful. The fact that he had been right before, which he pointed out a couple of verses ago, and he says, hey, you guys should have listened to me. He wasn't sticking his thumb in their eyes. He was saying, hey, listen, let me explain something to you. I, I was right before, which helps you understand that I'm right now. And that what I'm telling you before was true verifies that what I'm telling you now is true. Just as I was correct that this passage was doomed if you decided to set sail from Fair Havens, it's also true and correct that God is going to deliver us if you are willing to believe in God. It helped the listeners know that he was right and that he was telling them the truth. He wasn't rubbing anything in, he was being honest so that they could know his words were genuine. But notice this, he wasn't just blowing hot wind in a bad situation. There was plenty of wind already. He wasn't saying, you guys, everything's gonna be fine and everything's just gonna work out for the best. As he delivered his message of hope, it was rooted in the revelation of God. Here's what God has said. Not what I want to happen or what I think you need to hear. He said, this is what God has said. It was revealed, he was honest. But he also said, not everything's gonna be okay. The ship's going down. It's all gonna be lost. We're gonna escape, but only with our lives. And the escape is gonna be rough. No helicopters, no choppers coming in to like airlift us out. I mean, we're gonna run aground. Those are scary words to hear when you're on the open sea. But his message was clear, it was confident, it was definite. It was full of real answers and real hope. People around us who are afraid and who are lost and trapped in their sins, they need real answers about how to be saved. Real hope. And we, as we've been talking about for a number of weeks uh, here at Calvary in both of our studies here in the book of Acts and on Sunday mornings in the book of the Revelation are talking about how you as a Christian have authority to speak for Jesus Christ, to speak forth his word that says, I can tell you how you can be saved for time and for eternity, how God can deal with your sin and separate them as far as the east is from the west from you. I can tell you with authority that Jesus Christ has paid your debt and will cancel out your debt if you will own him as savior. We can speak the way that Paul speaks here with real answers, real hope. So in these verses, we see Paul being truthful and hopeful. We also see him uh, just part of that hope was saying, hey, you don't need to be afraid. Now, does that mean that a Christian's never afraid? Of course not. We don't need to get that kind of idea. Paul himself you know, would ask in his epistles, hey, please, please pray for me that I would speak as boldly as I ought. Please pray for me that God will strengthen me. Jesus Christ came and appeared to Paul earlier in the book of Acts and he says, hey, don't be afraid. So it doesn't mean that we are never afraid, but it does mean that we are to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves and regularly walk in the reality that Jesus Christ's resurrection power sets us free from fear even when the world is crumbling all around us. So he's being truthful, he's being hopeful. We also see him being useful for this ship, how? Well, on one level, because he was one calm and resolute leader in a time of crisis, they needed that. 
but also because he was the one that made it possible for 273 of them to be saved. You see, God wanted Paul and his friends to get to Rome. All of the other people on the ship, they were loved by God, but frankly, they weren't following him, right? They're pagans. They're, they're people that are living according to their own wants and desires, their own purposes. They're at war with God. And in fact, they were living in rebellion towards him. They ignored the common grace of general revelation that said, you shouldn't sail past the end of September. That's folly. And they said, nah, we don't care about that. Yes, common sense and rationality and the signs in the weather tell us we shouldn't do this, but we're gonna rebel against that. We're gonna you know, stick our nose up at the creator and say, we're gonna go whenever we wanna go. So they're even living in rebellion in that sense, but they go and now they were reaping what they sowed. And Paul goes below decks after he had been ignored. And what did he do? He prayed that they would all be saved. And guess what? It worked. The fervent prayer meetings of the Christians on board probably seemed like a waste of time to the frantic soldiers. And yet the angel tells Paul, God has given you all of those who are sailing with you. That means he asked for them. He petitioned God for them. He requested that God show mercy to these men who did not deserve mercy. None of us deserve mercy. These men actively didn't deserve mercy. Pagans, God-haters, who said, we don't care what creation says, we're sailing when we want to. We got, we got Phoenix to get to. We got money to make. And Paul said, will you grant me these guys? Will you, will you spare their lives? And the Lord said, yeah, we'll do that popular today for unbelievers to rail against the phrase, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims when a tragedy happens. You know, prayer matters. That's the truth. When God's people pray, it actually matters. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect, James chapter five says. The most useful action on that ship was not the moving of cargo or the girding of the bow or the lowering of anchors. It was three Christians praying that God would intervene and do something that's impossible. That was the most useful thing. One more thing here. Paul told them to be hopeful and full of cheer, even though every material good was going to be lost. That is not what a merchant wants to hear, right? But as Paul speaks, we discover that it's life that matters, not merchandise. Your value is measured not by what you transport, not by what you store up, not by what you achieve. You are valuable because you belong to God and are loved by him and are held by him. That's where your value comes from. Understanding that helps us to put our lives into perspective. So you may be, in the sense of this story, you may be a soldier or a sailor or a merchant in your day job, but the purpose of your life is not to trade in goods or to fight in human battles or any of those sorts of things. The purpose of your life is to be held by God and to serve him and to enjoy his presence. That's why there's a big difference between the run-of-the-mill soldier that we kind of see represented here and Cornelius. What was Cornelius about? When we think of him, we don't think of, oh, he commanded all these men. We think of he was a great man who loved the Lord and prayed to God and honored God and served him. That's what his life was about. His day job was to put on the armor and to be a soldier. And so it's not that we can't have a day job but your life's purpose is to belong to God and to serve him. Verse 27, when the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea 
And about midnight, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. And fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed to daylight for daylight to come. On that same Columbia trip, man, this was a kind of a rough trip now that I think of it. <laughs> on that same Columbia trip, we, we, we always were missing flights on when we would go down to Columbia for one reason or another. So we missed our final flight from Bogota, the capital, into the sticks. Um, and so instead of flying 40 minutes, we had to drive like five hours into the mountains to get to the Bible college on time. Uh, four or five hour drive, I've never been that sick before or since. Uh, easily the worst five hours of my entire life. And um, I mean, I felt like a lightweight, but I do remember the last half hour or so, I just was praying to God, like, God, this has to end. <laughs> I, I got nothing left. Just like crumpled over in the back seat every few minutes, I had to say, you gotta stop, take care of business again, get back in. And uh, it, it, was, it was unpleasant. One of my travel companions, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> One of my travel companions, <laughs> afterwards, I was just like, we finally get there. I'm just like on the bed, like gray. <laughs> wondering, like, am I even alive still? Is this like an out-of-body thing now? He said, oh, I had a bunch of stuff for like stomach sickness. Like, I, I probably could have given you some. So I owe him one, Alex. I'm kind of queasy even thinking about how bad I felt on that trip. Man, whoo! Now, that was five hours, and there was very little worry I was actually going to die. These guys are facing imminent death for two weeks straight. We can be sure that day by day, Paul and Luke and Aristarchus were encouraging these uh, guys and helping them. As Christians, we have to keep hope alive in this lost and dying world. Keep hope alive, not with platitudes, but with truth. The dawn is coming. There is salvation. We know the way. We know the person. Keep hope alive in the circles that you navigate in. Verse 30, some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff and let it drop away. Interesting, the sailors didn't believe the soldiers did. Uh, it's amazing that after all that happened, despite Paul's truthfulness, all he had done to help, uh, there were still some who wouldn't believe. And the truth is salvation is a choice. As Christians, we lay out God's word and his plan to people, and then they have to choose whether or not they're going to believe. Now, what we see here is that God had explained some very specific parameters to Paul because Paul went to the centurion and said, hey, there are some rules to this plan of God's redemption. Uh, God wants to rescue everybody on this ship, but there are rules, very clear rules. If these guys leave, you all die. I mean, so a very clear rule. It seems strange as we read it, but that, that was the deal. This was a moment of decision, and it was very clear. 
We also see an important analogy here. The skiff was their lifeboat, the last man-made hope. God wanted them to let it all go. Would they trust him and his plan or would they not? Paul was content to ride that ship until it broke apart. He'd rather do that than trust to some little skiff. Why? Because he believed the Lord's plan and he knew his savior could be trusted. Verse 33, when it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food saying, today's the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food for this is for your survival since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They all were encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. So careful, truthful, helpful, hopeful. Now we see the Christians were thankful. Paul gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. We must not forget he would have had to have shouted over the howling of the wind. He'd have to still endure the stinging spray of the waves on his face. And yet he honored God and thanked him there on the deck. Christian hearts are meant to be this full, this full. It's just a special thing that Paul could do. It wasn't his special power up. This is the, the Christian experience that we are so full of God's living water that that we can sing praises in the dungeon and we can give thanks in the storm. How? Well, it's part of the heart of Christ given to us, the peace of Christ given to us. We put it on and let it in. You know, the Bible, the New Testament tells us a lot of times, hey, let this mind be in you. Put on the heart of God. Receive the peace of Jesus Christ. It's not just because it's something we should do, it's because that's what fills us full. So we can be the kind of people that can thank God and honor him while the ship breaks apart. The Christians demonstrate some important things. First, look at what a difference a few Christians can make even in the worst situation. Not only are they the agents of rescue, they also bring all of these hearts back from the depths of despair. Everyone was encouraged, we're told. Second, we see that these Christians practice what they preach. They told the men around them to have hope, trust God, be of good cheer, and that's what they were doing. It wasn't just some, you know, it wasn't just a slogan. I mean, this is what they believed and what they did. Third, these Christians were strong in the Lord. Look at their confidence, not in themselves or what they were doing, but all in God and all in his promises. For many years, it's been fashionable for Christians to, not all Christians, but some Christians to embrace and promote brokenness. I'm sure it's rooted in the idea of, of being poor in spirit like we read about in the Sermon on the Mount and recognizing that none of us are perfect, none of us have arrived. That's, that's true, that's real. But here's the problem. When we look at these people who are always talking about brokenness and just embracing this idea of like, we're just all broken all the time, what it leads to, it converts to a celebration of instability. When you see Christians talking about brokenness a lot, it ends up just being an excuse to not progress in our walk with the Lord, to just surrender to the difficulties of life and the weakness of our flesh and just sort of stay at a low broken down level. Listen, we do come to God spiritually bankrupt, but we aren't left bankrupt. He installs his richness in us and his strength in us and his power in us. He transforms us and makes us into a new creation. He does something with our lives. He makes us strong. He makes us stand. He makes us steadfast like a mighty tree 
planted by rivers of water, not blown down by the winds of this world, but firm and resolute. That's the whole point. He says, if you build your house upon the rock, the wind and the waves come and you're not knocked down. You hold strong, you stand fast. You show that God's power is greater than the power of the world. God doesn't leave you broken. So be strong in the Lord and be of good courage. He transforms us day by day. After all, he's the kind of God that cares about even the hairs on your head. Who cares about hair? God cares about hair. He cares about them. He's numbered each and every one. You see that in verse 34? Your hair matters to God. That's his love for you. Does that mean that we're perfect and that we never mess up or that we never feel weak or we never have doubt? No, of course not. No one is saying that. No one's suggesting that. The New Testament doesn't suggest that. New Testament epistles are full of encouragement and exhortation and say, hey, let's gird up. We're looking, we just got through looking at the seven churches in the book of the Revelation and the, and the Lord came to them and said, hey, I have some things you need to work on and here's some things you're doing well. Here's some things you're not doing so well. So this isn't saying that like you're never allowed to have any kind of doubt. You're never allowed to have any kind of discouragement. You're never allowed to have any kind of mess up. No one's saying that. But this idea that we all just embrace brokenness all the time and revel in how weak and broken we are, that's not Christian. God makes us strong and steadfast. And if we can't stand up in the storm, what are the sailors and soldiers and merchants who are doomed to die supposed to do? We need to have hope and answers for people. We need to be able to say our God is able and is strong. That's not something I just heard one time. It's, let me show you what he's done in my life and how he's done the impossible in my life and held me up when the world was caving in. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea. At the same time, uh, they loosened the ropes that held the rudders, and then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach but they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow, jam the, the, bow. the bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks, some on debris from the ship. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. Don't ever say things can't get worse. There might be a sandbar you don't know about. <laughs> One more full shown by the Christians here. They had been careful, truthful, hopeful, thankful, helpful. And here we see they were faithful to the end. They stuck with the Lord's plan all the way to the very last. It's hard to hit the water when you don't know how to swim, uh, but they did. I don't know if those three guys knew how to swim, probably a good chance that at least one of them didn't. But we also see here wonderful demonstrations of God's amazing providence. He made sure that his servants were saved from the execution of the Roman soldiers. And then he made sure that every one of those 276 travelers made it safely to shore. Man, in a catastrophe like this, no one ever gets everybody out, right? Even in the modern era, they never get everybody out. Everybody made it out. Everybody made it to shore. These dudes couldn't swim and no one was out going out to rescue them and they still made it to shore. That's providence. That is a good and gracious God. He brought each one of those individuals away from the carnage of the wreck and delivered them safely onto land. What a good God. At the start of this voyage, Paul and the other Christians were from one vantage point only ballast, right? 
They're being ignored. It's just a prisoner. We're going to do our own thing. In the end, we see how meaningful their part to play was. At first glance, it didn't seem like there was much they could do, right? But then we look closer and we see that what they could do, they did do. And what they did made a huge difference. They were careful to go God's way. They were truthful with the people around them, which ultimately showed them all the way of escape. They were hopeful even in the darkest of dangers, knowing that God's love never fails. They were helpful in big and small ways. They weren't content to let the ship go to hell in a handbasket. They involved themselves. They put their shoulders to the work. They were thankful and faithful. And because of all of that, their presence was powerful as God worked through them in a time of great need. Now, as we close, I wouldn't be like these Christians if I didn't take a chance to speak to anyone listening who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. We may not be on the Mediterranean, but you're in even worse danger than any of these sailors were. You see, while this story really happened, it's also a picture for you of what life is like without Christ. You are the soldier, you are the sailor, you are the merchant on the ship, and it is headed to the bottom. And you're headed to the bottom with it unless you get saved. You can't avoid the shipwreck. Shipwreck is death. You can't avoid it. It's coming for you. It's coming for every one of us. The Christians in the room just aren't worried about it. But if you're not a Christian, you are going down with the ship. There's no lifeboat that can save you. It doesn't matter how many battles you'd won. It doesn't matter how much merchandise you've delivered. In the end, you are going to die and the grave is gonna claim you like the sea claimed this ship. There is one way and only one way for you to escape and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he loves you and he knows you and he's calling out to you, knocking on the door of your heart right now, the Bible says. He's the only hope for you to escape death and receive everlasting life. But to receive that free gift, you must believe and obey. Jettison every other cargo, cut free every other scheme or plan that you have. You may be saying, oh, I'll convert on my deathbed. That's the skiff. That's the lifeboat that you've tried to tie onto the deck of your life and hope that it will save you at the last second. It's not gonna save you at the last second. You don't know if you'll have a deathbed. You might, be, you might not make it home tonight. Yeah, you might have 50 years left. You might have 50 minutes left. You might have 50 seconds left if you have a congenital heart problem, right? We don't know. There's no other lifeboat. There's no other scheme. There's no other method. There's no other plan that's gonna save you from the certainty of death other than the power of Jesus Christ and his salvation, which is extended to you freely if you will receive it as a gift. Jettison everything else. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Matthew Webb, the guy from the beginning, the man who swam the channel, he tried one final stunt. He thought he could swim the rapids of Niagara below the falls. It was a huge risk, but he had been promised a large sum of money. If you get to the other shore, there's a big purse waiting for you. John McCloy, a veteran ferryman, tried to warn him, warn him. He said, if you go in, you'll never come out alive. But Matthew thought he was strong enough to make it through on his own. He went in the water on July 24th, 1883. Four minutes later, he was gone and his body was recovered on the 28th. It was over. The strongest, greatest swimmer in the world. He couldn't make it across. Without Christ, you cannot be saved. You can't come out of the wreck. With Christ, the wreck can't hurt you. What an amazing thing, because nothing can separate us from his love. To be a Christian makes all the difference, not only in this world, but most importantly in the next. 
And being Christians, we're supposed to go out and make a difference in the lives of the people around us.